Well, these are interesting times, aren't they? You know, there's a, a popular saying that's repeated in the Bible. You find it over and over and over again, and it's this phrase, do not be afraid, do not fear, do not be afraid, do not fear. And oftentimes, uh, when an angel or a messenger comes to deliver that message, it's too late, right? They're, they're already afraid. You think of Mary, right? And she finds out that the, the angel comes to her, and he's trying to give her the, the message that she's going to be the mother of the Son of God, and... What's the first words that the angel has to say? Mary, don't be afraid. Why? Because she's greatly troubled. The angel shows up in a dream to Joseph. And the first thing is it wakes Joseph up. He says, don't be afraid. You know, sometimes we have to tell us what is true, even when we don't feel it to help us believe. I want to read to you as we begin this morning from Romans, Romans 8. I'm going to hop around a little bit, but Paul writes this. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. In the same way, the spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors who, through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, neither angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation, including viruses, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's my challenge for all of us, okay? In, in these uncertain times and people are, are nervous and they're scared because we don't know what's happening next, right? The, the news seems to change by the day. I want all, this is a time when communities kind of rally together. And when the people of God, when the world seems darkest, we get to shine brightest. And so here's what I want all of us to do. Is I want you to find somebody in your neighborhood today. I want you to go to a neighbor today. And I want you to get their phone number. Okay, somebody, maybe you know them a little bit. You don't have that much of a relationship with them. I want you to go to them. I want you to get their, get their phone number. And just tell them, hey, we don't, we don't know where this thing's headed. This could be like... Italy in a couple weeks where, you know, we're just kind of on lockdown. Or it could be nothing. Hopefully the, the measures that are taken were, will kind of ease the, the spread of this thing. And 
it'll just be life as normal. But either way, I want to be prepared. And as a good neighbor, I just want to be able to give you my number. I'd love to have your number so that I can just check in on you, be, be praying for you. And is there anything I can pray for you about right now? So that, that's your challenge, okay? Find a neighbor today who you don't know that well. Get their number and just be a good neighbor. That's, this is what a good neighbor does. And we have an opportunity right now as the church to be good neighbors in a, in a time of uncertainty. And so considering that, I, w- I want to walk you through a little bit of how you can either fracture relationships, fracture a family, or build relationships and build a family. We've been in this series, Every Family on, uh, every family on Mission, Connecting the Church and the Home, and um, this morning, you know, we'll look at every family has issues, right? There's no perfect family out there, and some of you are going to be a little more close quarters these next, these next few weeks with school being, being out, but and you'll see those issues a little more in the, in the forefront. But every family has issues. And I want to take you to a, kind of a highly dysfunctional family this morning. But in the midst of that dysfunction, there's um, some strong relationships as well. So turn with me, if you would, to 1 Samuel chapter 18. 1 Samuel chapter 18. I will be kind of hopping in and out of the text this morning. But to set the scene for you... This section in 1 Samuel, it's written to make the point that King Saul has forfeited his right to be the king of Israel. And at the same time, it's written to make the point that David will be the justified, the rightful king of Israel. And as this section kind of develops, we're going to look and we're going to see the relationship between King Saul and David who will actually become his son-in-law in the course of this text, and also the relationship between two brothers-in-law, David and Jonathan. And, and we're going to see how one relationship is built and cultivated and another relationship is fractured. And so we're just going to ask the question, what builds relationships and what, what fractures them? So let's get started. First Samuel 18, we'll start in verse 1. It says this, As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. So, you need to understand at this point, when David is standing before Saul, David is, uh, his chest is probably heaving, okay? He's breathing deeply, his heart just beating out of his chest because here's this young shepherd boy standing in front of the king of Israel and David in his hand is holding his grisly trophy, this, this victory of the head of Goliath. It's in his hand as this is talking here and, and he's explaining that he's the son of Jesse. Now, Saul and David, they already knew each other, okay? This is not the first time they've met. David had played the harp for Saul and tried to calm Saul down when he's been anxious before. Um, David had been the armor bearer for Saul. And King Saul had promised the hand of his oldest daughter to whoever could slay Goliath. And now David has just slayed Goliath, so he's there and... Saul, maybe he's thinking, all right, well, it's time to get to know my future son-in-law a little bit better here as he's, as he's won the prize. And as they are talking, the spirit moved in David's future brother-in-law, King Saul's son, Jonathan. He said, David is, uh, he's my kind of guy. 
We've been knit together. I love David. And you may be running ahead in the story, and you know what's going to happen between David and Saul and how that relationship's not going to go so well. But I I want you to remember something, okay? And you can uh, just listen to 1 Samuel 16.21. You can turn back if you'd like. But it says this, And David came to Saul and entered his service, and Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. The same verb that is used to tell us that Jonathan loved David was also used to tell us that King Saul loved David. It's the same word. But in one case, this relationship will be fractured. And in the other case, there's this lasting bond of friendship that's forged. Well, how does that happen? How, how, how does it happen where love can turn to hatred? How do, you, how do you maintain love in the face of incredible uh, competition? How come in some cases we can see communities rallying together, singing together, and in other cases we see shoppers like having fistfights at Costco? Why, why does that happen? How, how come there can be uh, a spouse who can find love in the arms of someone else? And how come other times people through incredible adversity seem to grow even tighter, even stronger together? What would cause someone to betray a friend? And what makes other friendships grow even stronger? What fractures a relationship and what builds a relationship? All all those questions, this section kind of helps us answer a little bit. So we're going to look at the keys to building relationships or fracturing Relationships. So go ahead, flip back, chapter 18, verses 2 through 5. Okay, we'll pick it up, pick up the story there. 1 Samuel 18, 2 through 5. And Saul took him that day, would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. So that Saul set him over the men of war, and this was good in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants. So, David, he's fresh off the fields with the sheep. He's a young teenager. He's probably wearing just some tattered clothes. He's the youngest kid from a modest family. Uh, He's all but forgotten at home, okay? Jesse, he hardly even remembers that David is his son, and the king of Israel, King Saul, he comes and says, hey, you're staying in my palace. My home is now your home. Saul's not letting David go. And at first glance, it seems nice on the, on the surface, but as you kind of dig in, you get the clues of scripture, it kind of hints at Saul's motives. And Saul begins to treat David as if David's like his own personal property. Like, hey, David, I'm, I'm going to say do this and you do it. I say go there and you go there. And, and so th- this purity of motive is not really so pure after all. And some of that's to be expected. David is uh, just a, a servant in the kingdom. He's had some success and Saul is king. But King Saul does something very interesting here. He says, David, I'm going to put you in charge of all, the, of all the warriors and in charge of the men of war. And you need to know, in those days, a monarch in all the other kingdoms, when a monarch was there, a king was there, he would always put his oldest son 
in the place to lead the men of war. This is a highly esteemed position. And so the son of the king was always the commander because he was second only to the king. And if something were to happen to the king, then this person would be made king. And King Saul, he has some selfish motives here because he wants David's success to kind of build up his kingdom. And so he puts David there. He, David is successful, so he gives David this place that rightly belonged to Jonathan and so that his kingdom could be advanced further. You need to understand this. Selfishness fractures. Selfishness will fracture a relationship. It will fracture a family. If, if you want to have relationships that are always on your terms, if you want to have relationships that are always revolving around meeting your needs and the other person always listening to your issues, your problems, relationships that are a one-way street, I mean, if you're like Saul and you say, man, I've got friends I haven't even used yet, uh, then you will fracture relationships. You will fracture your friendships. Uh, and so this is what's happening. And at the same time, there's Jonathan. And from Scripture, we understand that Jonathan is about 20 years older than David. Okay, it's not like they're the same age and they have all this stuff in common. Uh, no, Jonathan is older He's the firstborn son of a king. David is the youngest of a poor shepherd family, okay? He's from the other side of the tracks. These two do not have a whole lot in common. There's no this common affinity. There's not all this like similarity that, yeah, we're going to be best buds. No, it's not like that. They're not really so similar. But Jonathan says to David, there's something about you that just kind of binds us together. So here, and he takes off his royal robe and he puts it on David. And he gives him his armor and he gives it to David. He gives him his sword and his bow and he gives it to David. It's almost like Jonathan saying, man, you were incredible with that slingshot. I can't wait to see what you can do with this. And David, when you consider David, he didn't really have a whole lot to offer Jonathan except competition. I mean, he's competition for the crown, he's competition for being the leader of the armies, all this stuff. And Jonathan, even with nothing to gain from this friendship with David, he says, here, here's my armor, here's my robe. He bestows this honor on to David, giving David a gift like he'd never really received before. And now David stands in the presence of Saul next to Jonathan, and it is David who looks like the king. It's David who's dressed in the finest robe. It's, it's David who has the armor. It's David who looks like the next king. And Jonathan is the one who looks like the shepherd boy at this point. See, this is a beautiful picture. I can't help but read this scene and just picture our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The prince who came from heaven and took off his royal robes so that he could give us his robes of righteousness. The, the, the prince who came from heaven and said, here, here's your spiritual armor so that you can stand against any attack that the world may throw at you. Why did he do that? Because we're so worthy? No, absolutely not. It's because he gener generously loved. Saul promotes David to Jonathan's position, but Jonathan doesn't complain. He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't argue. He doesn't try to say, oh, man. These people, they, they love David. They, they should be loving me. That, that should be my position. 
I should have been the one. In every other country, I would have been next in line. What is my dad doing anyway? Jonathan doesn't do any of that. Jonathan simply loved David. He was thrilled by the success of David. See, understand this. Generosity builds a family. Generosity builds a relationship. Generosity says here, all this stuff, it's going to be better in your hands than it will be in mine. You can make better use out of this than I could. Here, take it, take it. Generosity doesn't sulk when you're passed up for a position, but it rejoices with the one who advances. Generosity doesn't say oh, we're competing. Generosity says we're on the same team. How are we going to make this place better? Generosity doesn't say, you know, I've got to make sure that I've got it all. Generosity says, hey, do you have toilet paper at your house? Selfishness fractures, and generosity cultivates. I want you to see another key, 1 Samuel 18, verse 6 through 9. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul, with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very, very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can, they have, can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. So the women of the city, they form a choir, and they're singing. Saul doesn't too much care for the sound of their music. He's infuriated. Make no mistake, they are singing praises to both Saul and David. It's just the praises are a little more for David. David's the one with spotlight. He's the one on center stage. And so Saul begins to clutch the kingdom just a little bit tighter. Because now he's fearful. Understand this, jealousy will fracture a family. Jealousy will fracture a relationship. Jealousy thinks in terms of me, myself, and I, that I should have this. This is mine. People should love me the way they're loving you. The, the trouble here is, understand, the kingdom does not belong to Saul, and the kingdom does not belong to David either. It's not Saul's to clutch, and it's not David's to claim. The kingdom belongs to God. Okay? Our community is not just ours, it's not theirs, it's, it's, it's God's and we are stewards of it. When, when the world revolves around us and other people then disrupt that, that's when jealousy creeps in. When life becomes about me, myself, and I and what happens to me and what happens in my life, when it becomes about that and then people disrupt that or things don't go the way we think they should go, that's where jealousy happens. Then we get upset because it's about me, and jealousy always fractures. I mean, look, look at the women's choir again, okay? They're singing about David. They're singing about Saul. But did you notice they make no mention of Jonathan? They're not singing anything about him. Saul at least has thousands. Jonathan, he gets zero. Okay, there's no mention of Jonathan. He's not even on their minds. The next mention of Jonathan is in chapter 19, verse 1. I want you to look at that. 19, verse 1. This is the next mention of Jonathan. It says this. 
And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. But by this point in the story, Saul's clutch on the kingdom is so tight that he wants David dead. And if David is dead, who would be the next king? It would be Jonathan, the one who no one is singing about. But Jonathan takes such great delight in David that he says, no, Dad, what are you doing? This isn't right. I mean, if David were out of the way, the kingdom would naturally fall to him. He'd be the next king. But Jonathan isn't, ta- isn't thinking in terms of self. He's not thinking, me, myself, and I, this could be my kingdom. I could be in charge. It would be great if everything came to me. He's not thinking that way. He's rejoicing in the success of David. So understand this. Joy builds. Joy builds a family. Joy builds a relationship. If you want to cultivate relationships, then when you're passed over, when you're hurting, when things are going great for you, you're able to see the person who things are going well for and still rejoice with them. This is a great picture of the body of Christ. Paul says that in the, as the body of Christ, there's this amazing thing happens, that those who weep, the body of Christ comes alongside them and weeps with them. And at the same time, those who are rejoicing, the body of Christ comes alongside them and rejoices with them. And you know what? Sometimes you do that. You you may be the weeping one because things have not gone well for you. There's trouble in the family. There's difficulty at home. The job's not going well, whatever the case may be. And yet there's another brother or sister and things are going well for them. And you as the weeping one, as the crying one, you're able to come alongside of them and rejoice with them. This is the picture of Jonathan. He's, things are going well for David. Things seem pretty good for, for David. He's, he's, he's advancing. And, and Jonathan just comes alongside and says, I'm so happy for you. This is good. I'm delighted in what you're doing. Joy cultivates. At this point, you know, King Saul, he's so jealous. He's roaring all over his house. I want you to see what happens next. Uh, chapter 18, verses 10 through 15 says the next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre. As he did day by day, Saul had his spear in his hand and Saul hurled the spear for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but he had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people, and David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Did you notice in this passage that David has to try to escape Saul twice? David's playing the lyre, playing the harp, trying to call Saul Saul down as he had before. But Saul, in his unrestrained rage, is hurling spears at him. Notice, this rage is motivated by fear. Saul, he sees the Lord is with David. His hand is on David. And he's thinking, man, he's playing the comparison game. He's competing with David. He's competing with, for the love of the people. He's competing for the, the, the crown of the kingdom. He's competing for the favor of the Lord. 
And understand this, competition fractures. Competition fractures a family. Competition fractures a relationship. And you know this, you parents who have kids in athletics or drama or some kind of extracurricular activity, you know, you know how this works, right? Your, your kid doesn't make the, isn't picked for the team for whatever reason and all their friends are. And what's the inclination? To make excuses, right? Well, he should have been picked. It was the coach's fault. It was the kid was sick. My kid was sick that day. He didn't have his best tryout, whatever. You know, and you see they get passed over for some kind of drama thing. And it, it, it's always, we can make excuses. We can point the finger and we can say, well, it would have been. It's not right, whatever. Instead of just coming alongside and rejoicing for the one who was picked. Instead of just saying, it's not a competition. Let's let the best people get on the team so the team can be the best. The best actors get on the stage, however it goes. But you look for other people more than you look out for yourself. It can be the same thing at the job, right? You, you get two people. I don't want them to have more sales than I do. i got to be better and all this. And it's a competition. Sometimes in a marriage, who's doing more work around the house? Who's having more of an impact on the kids? Who's, who's doing this? Who's doing that? Competition fractures. It fractures in the family. It fractures in the workplace. It fractures on sports teams. It fractures. Look at how Jonathan responds with this threat on his friend's life. Uh, chapter 19, verses 2 and 3. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. Saul was going crazy. David was in his crosshairs. He's telling everyone he's got this plan to kill David, to preserve his kingdom. David has to go. And no one defied the king. Okay, in those days, no one defied the king. Not even your son would defy the king because it was a risk. And here's Jonathan. He risks life. He risks everything. He goes to his father and, and he says, Dad, this isn't right. Look at all that David has sacrificed for this place. I mean, he went up against this giant Goliath with a slingshot to save Israel. And now you want him dead? Come on, Dad, you had not done anything wrong. You had not done anything to deserve this. Jonathan is standing in the gap for David. Jonathan is risking his own life for David. Understand this, commitment cultivates. Commitment builds a family. Commitment builds a relationship. Jonathan, he's committed to helping David realize uh, God's purpose and potential that he has for his life. And even if that means personal loss, 
Even if it means he's not going to receive the praise of the people. Even if it means he's not going to receive the crown of the kingdom. Even if it means he's going to experience death from the hand of his dad. Jonathan's willing to risk whatever because he is committed to David. And you know what? That's how you build a relationship. That's how you build a family. When you know that, hey, this person, they're committed to me. They're committed for my success. They're they're committed that I would realize my potential. That could be all that God has made me to be. When when people know that, then that builds a relationship. That builds a friendship. That builds a family. We have an opportunity right now to show our neighbors, hey, we're committed to you. There's a lot of craziness going on out there. And and yeah, we, we don't want to be reckless. We want, to be, we want to be careful. We want to hear, heed the, the warnings of the CDC and whoever else. You know, I was in Sierra Leone, Africa, and I, I, I've been to see the mass graves of uh, Ebola victims over there. When they didn't know, they didn't know that personal contact could help transmit the disease and the disease would spread further. They didn't know. And so we, we played a video not too long ago of my friend Daniel who lost 21 family members because they didn't know. We do know, right? We, we have the information that, hey, you got to be somewhat careful here. We don't want this thing to spread and, and to, to cause mass casualties throughout our country. So we want to be wise. But at the same time, I think of my friend Pius over in Sierra Leone. And Pius, he was a new pastor, young man at the time. And, and he said to his wife, I'm called to be a doctor to the spiritually sick. And so I got to go out there and I got to be with people and I got to pray with people and I, I, I got to talk to them. I'm going to be careful, but, but I got to be with some people here. And his wife was like, Pius, come on. I mean, you're young. We've got a young family. He's like, I'm just praying. And he goes out. And during that time, he's able to lead several to come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. And to disciple them is what it means to be a Christian, that you're not just saved for heaven, but you're saved for a purpose here on earth. That you're a disciple maker. This is who God has made you to be. They have a purpose here and now. Live it well. And this is our opportunity to be committed to our neighbors, to maybe just get their phone number. We don't want to be reckless. We don't want to, be, we don't want to do anything to, that could spread the disease further. But we want to be careful. And commitment does that. Commitment says, I'm, com- I'm committed to your best. And if that means I isolate for a little bit, I'll isolate for a little bit. But I'm still going to be on the phone. I'm going to be checking in on you. If there's anything I can bring you, I'm going to do that. That's what Jonathan's doing for David. He says, I'm, I'm going to go to Saul. And he's enraged. He's out of his mind. He's got an evil spirit tormenting him. And Jonathan still, even with all that, stands in the gap for David. Because he's committed to his friend. I want to keep reading with you. Uh, chapter 19, verses 8 through 11. And there was war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow, so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear. But he eluded Saul, so that he struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house house to, to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, 
If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be, you'll be killed. David continues to serve. David continues to fight for Israel. He continues to defeat the Philistines. They, they, he hasn't gone into hiding yet. And meanwhile, Saul continues to be selfish. He continues to be jealous. He continues to measure himself against David. And the scene's almost like deja vu, right? This one here in chapter 19, we just read it in chapter 18. The same thing's happening again. David fights a battle. David wins the battle. Saul's played by an evil spirit. David plays a harp trying to call Saul down. Saul's enraged. He's throwing spears at the wall trying to, trying to pin David down. It's the same thing. Nothing is changing. But there's one thing that you really need to notice here. And it's a great key if you want to fracture a relationship, if you want to fracture your family. Notice this. How many times does, Dave, does Saul have a hard conversation with David? How, how many times does, David, or does Saul go to David and say, Hey, David, I see your success. I see the way that people love you. And you need to know I'm just struggling with it. I'm having a hard time because I'm king and I, I want the people to love me and I want everyone to be behind me and I feel like they're behind you and this is, this is really messing with me a little bit. I'm struggling with this. He never does that. He just bottles it all up inside and he develops this jealousy, this competition, this, this selfishness. He never has the hard conversation. So when you're going through difficult times, when times are tough, when things are hard, are you able to go to the other person and just have a hard conversation and just say, I'm struggling with this. This is bothering me and I need to tell you about it. And you do it in humility, you do it in love. I mean, he didn't do any of that. I mean, Saul, he's just enraged against David. He never does it. He never has the hard conversation. Instead, he avoids. Under this, understand this. Avoidance will fracture a family. Avoidance will fracture a relationship. You go through the passage and you look at all the times that Saul is sending David into battle, hoping that David will be killed. I mean, we skipped a huge section in chapter 18. Um, and in that section, David declines to marry Saul's oldest daughter, Michael. Okay, he, David says, hey, I'm not going to do it. And... Uh, he eventually does. He does marry Michael, and their love for each other is great. And Saul is thinking, oh, this is good. Because now that David is married to my daughter, he's part of my family, and the Philistines are going to want him dead even more. And you thought your in-laws were tough. I mean, this is awful, isn't it? Like, marry my daughter so that you can be killed. See, Saul has this pattern of avoiding with David. He avoids the hard things, he avoids the hard conversations, and then he avoids any type of self-control. He's just spewing hatred to everyone he's talking to about David and saying he needs to die, avoiding fractures. When you speak and you fully express your feelings without the consideration of how the other person's feeling, you know, when you say what you feel, how you feel, when you feel it, and you have no filter for the other person, how it sounds, how, it's gonna re how it will be received, when you avoid any type of self-control, you'll fracture a relationship. And at the same, on the, on the, on the other hand, and, and perhaps even worse, if you avoid having those difficult conversations, 
If you're always passive and just, oh, well, I'm, let me kind of walk the other way. I don't want to be around that person. I don't want to tell that person. And you just ignore somebody. But then you feel fully liberated to just kind of trash that person behind their back. Understand this. You will fracture a family. You will fracture a relationship. And that's what Saul does. And in his heart now, he's on this downward spiral that leads to this murderous intent. So David's on the run. And as he escapes, he has one of his last conversations with his uh, faithful friend Jonathan. Let's look at it. 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 12 through 17. Chapter 20, 12 through 17. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord... The God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm and the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive... Show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I might not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him. For he loved him as he loved his own soul. Jonathan, once again, he's preparing to have another hard, difficult conversation with his dad on behalf of David. He's so committed uh, to God's plan and purpose for David's life. You know, he wants this young ragtag boy from the hillside to take his place as the next king. He, he believes it's going to happen. It hasn't happened yet, but Jonathan believes it. You're the rightful king. This, this, this should be your place. And so he's preparing for another hard conversation with his dad. And I imagine uh, that this was a really hard conversation to have, to go again to his dad and knowing, oh man, I'm, I'm really risking it this time. And as he's preparing for this conversation, uh, he's telling David about it. And in those days, when a monarch... Um, died and there was a new monarch there was a new king of uh, of a place in this case Israel the new king would always have any members of a previous kingdom killed so that there would be no threat to the throne so Jonathan is going to David and just saying to David hey David remember how I kind of stuck it out with you Remember how I had that difficult conversation with my dad before? I'm, I'm going again. I'm going to do it again. But David, you, you got to swear to me that if there's anybody in my family who's like a threat to the throne, that you're not just going to have them killed. Swear it to me, David. Swear it to me again, David. I, I got to know this is what you're going to do, David. We're, we've been faithful friends. We've loved each other's brothers for all this time. Come on, David. And so he goes to him and he's pleading with him. Understand this, confronting builds a family. Confronting cultivates a relationship. There is something about going through a fire with somebody. There is something about having a hard conversation with each other and then you're able to see eye to eye that strengthens a relationship. 
I mean, having a hard conversation where eyes are locked and in love you're speaking freely and frankly and from the heart, that there is something about that where it is clear, hey, I'm only bringing up this serious topic because I so value this relationship. And if you'll do that with people you love, I guarantee you, you will build relationships. You will strengthen the family. It can be hard for them to hear. It might not happen right off, but in the end, it grows. Confronting cultivates, avoiding fractures. Jonathan, he goes to Saul, just like he told David he would do, but it doesn't go so well. Saul is furious with Jonathan. He, he just can't understand. Jonathan, how could you be helping David? This could be your kingdom. Well, why are you so committed to this boy anyway? And Saul, in his anger, he throws a spear at Jonathan. I mean, thankfully, Saul was really bad with throwing spears because he was missing all over the place. But uh, it's just... This is his response. It's always rage. It's always lashing out. It's always self-preservation. And Jonathan then warns David, hey, you got to go on the run. My dad is nuts. Okay, he wants you dead. And it came to Saul's attention that some priests had befriended David and fed David and kept David safe. And I I want you to see how Saul responds to that. 1 Samuel 22, verses 6 through 8. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gebeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand and all his servants were standing about him and Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Here now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at that day. Do you see? Saul makes himself the victim in all of this. Do you hear it? Everybody's against me. Everybody's conspiring against me. Nobody's telling me anything. Nobody's sorry for me. Everybody's abandoning me. Self-pity is so unattractive, isn't it? I mean, if you want to fracture a a relationship, if you want to fracture a family, this is where it ends up. Where you you end up, you're just thinking, it's all everybody else's fault. Everybody else just, they all teamed up against me. Nobody likes me. It's the whole woe is me bit. And, you know, as I first started looking at First Samuel and study, and my, my first thought is, man, David had it rough. You know, here's this guy, he's just out trying to help the kingdom, his nation, and stand up, and then he ends up with this crazy father-in-law who's the king, who just wants him dead, and he's having to go on the run, and man, David had it rough. But as you kind of read, and you kind of look at it, it's not so much poor David, it's poor Saul. Do you see that? I mean, Saul's the real victim here. He's thrown all these spears. He's lost all satisfaction in life. He has this devoted son-in-law who at one point he loved deeply. But because of selfishness, because of jealousy, because of of competition, because of avoidance, because of, of oppression by an evil spirit, 
all that love turns into self-pity, it turns into hatred, it turns into woe is me, the world is against me. And know this, if you fracture one relationship, you will fracture more. And Saul, he now doesn't just hate David, he hates Jonathan. He used his daughter to try to get David killed. I mean, he's fracturing every relationship in his life. There's only one verse in the Bible that talks about Saul's wife or where you have Saul's words about his wife, I should say. And Saul calls her rebellious and perverse. Okay, that's the only description we get from Saul about his wife. Rebellious and perverse. Saul kills the priests of the Lord. The spirit of the Lord leaves Saul. God allows an evil spirit to torment Saul. I mean, David's not the victim here. Saul's the victim. Because he only thought about himself. And he was consumed with this bitterness and this hatred. He was devoid of any meaningful relationship that he should have had. And because of Saul's disobedience, Jonathan lost the potential to be king. Instead of whining and complaining, Jonathan instead gave David his robes. He gave him his armor. He gave him everything. He forged a friendship that would last. And it was a friendship that was not based on chemistry. It was not based on affinity. It was not based on similarity. Understand, these two men were different age groups, different eras, different brought up in different kind of ways. But their spirits were knit together because of a shared faith in our great God. And then they were committed to one another. Now's our opportunity as a church to go to others in our community and say, I am sticking with you. Can I have your number? I want to be able to check in. I don't know where this thing is headed. Hopefully it'll be nothing. But just in case it gets bigger, in case somehow it gets on lockdown, I'd just like to have your number. And then one day, this thing is all going to pass, we hope, and And then you don't give up then. You go back and you continue to be a friend. And in these times, in these hard times, when they see that you're sticking with them, that you're committed to them, that maybe there's even some sacrifice involved because maybe you're going to the grocery store for them or whatever may be the case, you're going to have an opportunity a month from now, two months from now, some point down the line that you're going to be able to say, they're going to ask you, why why did you do all that? Why why did you continue to check in? Why did, why, why, why? Why did you do all that? And you're going to say, because I'm a child of the king. And this is who God made me to be. Heavenly Father, may we understand well who you have made us to be. Not reckless and not fearful. And God, even in those times when we feel afraid, take us back to your word so that we would hear it and believe it even when our feelings don't match up. God, uh, at this time, we, we join with many communities of faith, many people who love you all across 